the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finman. We have got a wonderful show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we'll be interviewing Jennifer Kaplan. She is a professor of Jewish studies at the University of Cincinnati, has written a book, Funny, You Don't Look Funny, Judaism and Humor from the Silent Generations to Millennials. I love talking about why are things funny. It's actually one of my favorite subjects. In the second half of the show... We'll be looking at maybe a little bit about the portion of Tzav, which is the portion which will be read in the synagogue. That's Leviticus chapter 6 and following, but probably most likely focus on the holiday of Passover, Pesach, which is coming up on April the 5th. We've got music all the way throughout the show. A wonderful, this obviously, this is a very poignant, thoughtful Hasidic story. And uh, one which you will you will take with you. And before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. One man remains in serious condition after being shot by an Arab near the city of Shechem. The victim shot and wounded the attacker. This is as he's got a shot. He's got a bullet, I think, somewhere in like its cheek or something. IDF forces arrested the terrorist because he needed medical help and he was taken to a different hospital. An Israeli army vehicle was damaged after it hit a mine along the Israel-Lebanon border, setting off an explosion. The two passengers, the two soldiers in the Jeep were hurt, one seriously, one moderately. Israeli Air Force jets blew up an Iranian weapons warehouse near Aleppo. Israeli security forces arrested four men as being part of a terrorist cell in Jerusalem that was planning several attacks. 
In other news, the number of anti-Semitic incidents in the United States saw a dramatic increase in 2022, according to the annual audit published by the Anti-Defamation League. 3,697 incidents of harassment, vandalism, and assault targeting Jews last year, a 36% increase from 2021. It is the highest total since the ADL kept records beginning in 1979. The Democratic-led Michigan House passed a resolution condemning inappropriate, repugnant Holocaust comparisons a day after the state's Republican Party leader sent a tweet comparing gun reforms to the Holocaust. The tweet used an image of wedding rings the Nazis seized from Jews at the Buchenwald concentration camp with the caption, Before they collected all these wedding rings, they collected all the guns. The resolution passed by voice vote, meaning the Republicans did not have to take a position. The party chair, Christina Caramo, defended and refused to apologize for the tweet. And finally, approximately 85,000 Muslims participated in Friday afternoon prayers as part of the month of Ramadan on the Temple Mount. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Shulfman here, listening to the Jewish Hour. Let's start things off with a little music. This is Uri David, Anichai, I'm Alive. Malenes 
assurance of quality and excellence in kosher look for the michigan k on the label what's it look like the lower peninsula of michigan with a k it's the symbol of the michigan kosher supervisors go to their website mycosup.com that's mi for michigan ko for kosher and sup for supervisors mycosup.com and find this month's featured products you'll find michigan k products wherever fine food is sold especially at natural food patch on west nine mile road in ferndale Hey, Schulfenman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online Professor Jennifer Kaplan, who is the department chair of Judaic Studies at the University of Cincinnati, has written a book called Funny You Don't Look Funny, Judaism and Humor from the Silent Generation to Millennials. Millennials. How are you today, Jenny? I'm doing well. How are you, Rabbi? Good. Thank God. Thank you for taking the time to come and talk about this. Let's talk first before we do anything else. I love the title. So if you could explain <laughs> to people why I love the title. Well, I am assuming you love the title for the same reason that I did. Um, and it is a, it's a play, of course, on the old funny, you don't look Jewish uh, punchline, which has been around for a better part of a century at this point, um, and, and has become its own uh, sort of catchphrase to the point where people can just kind of like throw that out as a line and those who are in the know, um, you know, will laugh and, and smile. So when I, when I thought about writing this book about Jewish humor and, and Jewish practice that looks a little bit different, um, I thought it would be a nice way to nod to that history uh, while looking towards the future. Okay, great. That's exactly what I was thinking. So it's, and so now, so paralleling that, continuing that, so you can't really fit into a mold what Jews like. There are the stereotypical Jewish things that, you know, but my mother, who was was Jewish 100%, my kid, one of my kids had the 23andMe done, and she turned out to be 100% Ashkenazi, which meant that I'm 100% Ashkenazi, which meant my mother's 100% Ashkenazi. And people would mistake her for Lebanese or Italian mm-hmm. or Greek. No one ever said that she looked Jewish. Okay, she just uh, so so Jews don't necessarily have a look. So let's turn that now towards 
towards humor. I've done this with music with a bunch of people. It's like, could you please define Jewish music? And it's it's a very it's like why is there air type of a thing, and I've had other people on to talk about Jewish humor per se and what makes humor Jewish. So let me ask you then that question, Jennifer Kaplan: What makes humor Jewish as opposed to say a Jewish humorist who might not be right. in Jewish humor? Yeah, no, I mean it's it's a great question, and in some ways it's the core question. Um, and what I will say is that in the book, I make a point of not trying to stake a claim to a new definition for that. Um, I think when you go all the way back to the way that Freud wrote about Jewish humor, I think that there is truth in what he thought about it, which is that it is humor that is done by Jews for Jews. Um, but I think that there's also value in the way that more contemporary people like Joseph Telushkin, Rabbi Telushkin in particular, has written about it as being something that's done by Jews, not necessarily for Jews, but that includes what he calls Jewish sensibilities, which are like family stress and anti-Semitism and assimilation um, and financial worries. Um, so like, I think that there's, I think there's something to be said about both of those approaches that think that Jewish humor has everything to do with the identity of the humorist and has maybe something to do with the audience. But the more I study it and the more I look, especially at contemporary Jewish humor, the more I think that Jewish humor can actually be defined as a a style of humor, almost like we would talk about slapstick or we can talk about, um, you know, puns or like different, different modes of humor that Jewish humor is actually a way of, it comes from a humorist who has positioned themselves outside of the societal mainstream and is being satiric and critical in a certain way. Uh, and what's really interesting for me is that if you think about Jewish humor as being a style, then it, it's not necessarily the case that it has to be done by Jews anymore. Um, and, and I think that that gives, especially when I look in the last like 20 years, um, I think that gives interesting nuance to the question. That is interesting. So you're saying Jewish humor might be considered a genre of humor? I'm, I, I remain intrigued by that possibility. The thing that really got me thinking that direction was Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Um, and I was like, this is, this is Jewish revenge fantasy. This, you know, this is Jewish alternative history. And, I, and then I caught myself and I was like, but Quentin Tarantino isn't Jewish, so obviously it can't be Jewish anything. Um, but every time I rewatched the movie, I couldn't shake the sense that he was that he was doing something that I wanted to define as Jewish, regardless of his identity. And so that kind of like got me thinking in that direction. There, there's a movie um, you probably know, the First Go Kid, sure, the Gene Wilder movie. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people talk about that as a Jewish, as Jewish humor. And I look back at the fact that the like writer and director aren't 
Jewish. So if that movie can be Jewish humor, and if Inglorious Bastards seems like it's some sort of like Jewish something, um, it, you know, it's very dark humor. Um, then I don't know. It, it it pushes me to think about Jewish humor as a genre it, after a century of Jews, American Jews doing this kind of humor, like maybe it has taken on its own momentum. Okay. Let's, let's follow up along with that. So in Jewish music, so Jewish music is identified as for its Jewish quality for the, like really an overriding characteristic is that it's played in a minor key which if you ask anybody, any musicologist will tell you that major keys are bright and happy and upbeat and and minor keys are somber. Are the Siberian winter. Yes. And morose. So, so Jewish music for the most part is written in minor keys. Even the happy songs are written in minor keys. So they still have that, that somberness to them. So would you say then, I mean, one of the things that I learned way back when, um, I took a course uh, in in school that was entitled Satire and Humor. I thought it was going to be a funny course. It was probably one of the hardest courses I ever took because what we would do is we would say for we would watch a movie and then everybody would laugh and then the teacher would play the movie again. And then we had to write down why it is that we laughed when we laughed when we laughed at what we laughed at. Yep. And that was like really hard. Like what made that funny? So when we're talking now about the uh, the the tone or the timber of of Jewish humor, so people that were in the shtetl who were making jokes were making jokes because they were trying not to get killed or dis or or, or expelled or starve or something like that. And would you say then nowadays? I don't even know where I'm going really with this question, but. As we progress, and you progress it through the the generations from the first wave of immigrants all the way up through millennials and Gen Zers, that because our perils haven't have shifted, and what we worry about has shifted, therefore the humor has shifted. Yeah, well, I mean that's exactly it. So, like the the question that everybody wants to ask, and when you watch you know documentaries about Jewish humor. Everybody asks this question. It's like, are Jews as funny today as they were in generations past? And like when they do these documentaries and they ask comedians that, the comedians all say no, um, with the exception of Mark Maron. Mark Maron is the only one I've heard say, yes, I think Jews are just as funny now as they used to be. Um, everybody else says, no, no, the old Jews were funnier than we are because we are comfortable we are not imperiled. We are, you know, happy and mainstream and whatever. Um, so, like, those are the two, uh, I guess, opposing camps of what is Jewish humor. If Jewish humor is humor that's done by Jews, then it's going to change as Jewish cultural contexts change and as Jews are no longer as stressed out or imperiled or existentially threatened as they were, then, then their humor is going to look different. Or if Jewish humor is the humor that comes out of being threatened and being on the margins and being imperiled, then that's more towards the idea that it's a genre and maybe it's less likely that Jews are all of the ones doing that now because they don't feel that same threat, but somebody else does. 
So, I, I mean, those are the exactly the two poles of it. Like, is, is Jewish humor changing because Jews have changed, or is Jewish humor a thing, and who's doing it is changing? Okay, our guest today, again, is Jennifer Kaplan. She has written a book called Funny, You Don't Look Funny, Judaism and Humor from the Silent Generation to Millennials. So it's about American humor specifically, because there is a whole other genre of uh, humor when you go outside of America. Russians yep. don't laugh at what Americans laugh at for whatever reason. They're really heavy into irony. And the joke, the Russian jokes mm-hmm. that, I, that I tell people, I tell people Russian jokes that I've heard from Russians that they've translated to me, and I think they're funny because I appreciate the irony, but... Americans just don't get them. So it's like, where's the joke? So I'm not going to tell one now. But anyway, so I have done, (laughs) Jennifer Kaplan, I've done my own research in this subject in preparation for today. I have uh, children that span the generations from millennials through to Gen Zers. And I I asked them, do you think the Marx Brothers are funny? And all of them said, yes. And then I asked, do you think the joke about what has the punchline, he had a hat, you know that joke? <laughs> yes. Okay. I, I tell that joke whenever anybody asks me to tell my favorite Jewish joke. That's the one I tell. Okay. So that joke, my grandmother, who was an immigrant, and my mother, who was a, uh, from the great generation, would guffaw. I yep. find the joke funny. I don't guffaw. I kind of like give you like a hearty smile and say, yeah, I can appreciate that one because I grew up with my mother and my grandmother. My kids don't think that joke is funny. So yep. what happened? Where where did things – it's like so – we want to say the comedians are different, but it's because they have – if they're trying to sell tickets and you know be popular, so they have to tell jokes that their audience is going to think are funny. So they're not going to tell the I had, he had a hat joke because they're not thinking that's funny. So how did that happen, Jennifer Kaplan? That happens, I think, um, and, and I think it's part and parcel of everything else we've been talking about. The reason why I single that joke out when people ask me, you know, what's your favorite Jewish joke? I don't necessarily think it's the funniest, but it's my favorite because I think it highlights so many things about Jewish humor and the tradition of Jewish humor. And one of them is this like Jewish inability to be content. And, you know, so even in the face of miraculous salvation, there needs to be that underlying complaint. There needs to be that, that little twist at the end. Um, and that, you know, when we're talking about contemporary Jews not having that same feeling of existential threat or, or crisis, um, I think that's part of it. I, I don't necessarily think that, and, uh, you know, hopefully your children do not feel threatened or discontented. You know, I hope your children are happy and feel well-adjusted and accepted in their place of work and accepted in their schools. And, and, you know, I hope that for them, but that's a very different mentality and view of the world. And it's not the mentality and view of the world that your, you know, mother, grandmother who would guffaw at that joke, they had a much more real experience of Jewish existential threat than you did or that I do. So we can smile at that joke because we understand elements of it, but it's not necessarily like hitting us on that deep belly laugh kind of place. And, and for your children, for, you know, for those generations, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't ring true. 
anymore. They don't recognize that 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 feeling, um, and and so I think that is precisely emblematic of this evolution of American Jews. Okay, so again, our guest today is Jennifer Kaplan. We're talking about her newest book, "Funny You Don't Look Funny: Judaism and Humor from the Silent Generation." to millennials. Now, you break the book up, and I love the way you do this, in, from, in time periods, basing on generations. So there's a generation, basically, that of Jews who came to this country who had the vivid memories of the old country, which, for the most part, people move from one place to another. They pick themselves up and move because where they are is just too impossible to continue living there. So they have to pick themselves up as refugees, basically, and come to a new place. So they have that refugee memory is imprinted in them. Then there's the Great Depression generation where, okay, they have their parents that are telling them about what happened in the shtetl, but in the meantime, they're living through a depression, which is, forms the uh, the basis of their psyche the growing up. My parents mm-hmm. were, were products of the, genera- the, the depression. Then you have the boomers who are, you know, my generation and uh, all this like explosion of 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 Americanism on the Jewish world, then leading into the Gen Xers, Gen the Millennials and the Gen Zers. So yeah. in, in your mind, is this like a, a natural progression or did you really, this is like you put this on a graph. How did you come up with, because it's, it's brilliant that you came up with this. I never thought about it in such terms, but how did you come up with it? Um, it was an interesting process. So uh, portions of the book started out as my dissertation um, from Syracuse University. But the dissertation was not organized um, around the generations. The dissertation was organized around the tripartite, three-legged stool, Torah, God, and Israel um, concept that people you know, discuss in terms of Jewish culture. Um, and so I, I had the I had the dissertation structured around like humor that has to do with with Torah or with scripture or text at least, um, and humor that has to do with God and humor that has to do with Israel, um, and that that was that was fine and that worked for the dissertation. But as as I was doing the research, what I really found was a more interesting story to me and an unexpected story was this generational shift. Um, and and it's interesting that you described it the way that you did, because I think that you pegged onto almost exactly the same thing that I found interesting, which is the, the shift from generations of Jews who identified with their Jewish cohort to generations of Jews who identified with their larger American cohort. Um, you know, so we traditionally we've talked about the first generation Jews, the second generation Jews, um, to some extent, the third generation uh, and and that silent generation chapter, where I kind of get going with the analysis, those are those those kids of the depression, the the interwar kids. Um, so that's uh, you know Mel Brooks and Joseph Heller and Woody Allen and Philip Roth and and all of those guys. Um, and none of them would identify as silent generation. They've probably never even heard the term, um, but they may identify as second generation Jews, which is how we've always talked about them. When we get to the baby boom, though, suddenly there's this real cultural shift where Jews start to think of themselves in terms of their American generation and not their Jewish generation. And in the book, I argue that by the time we then get to Gen X, that is entirely shifted, um, that you're going to meet very few Gen X American Jews who are going to describe 
their generational cohort in Jewish terms. They're going to describe themselves as Gen X. Um, and so I, I really saw that as an interesting way of looking at the Americanization process and the way that Jews begin to think about their identity, kind of moving from being a Jewish American to an American Jew. Like, what do you put first in the hyphen? Um, and we don't see much description of people as Jewish American anymore. We usually see the phrase American Jewish. Um, so I, I sort of saw that as, as the interesting thing that came up. And I didn't expect to see that, but that's, that's what the data started to tell me as I was looking at it. Okay, interesting. And now, paralleling, because we do this, I've been doing it through the whole interview already, paralleling music to to humor, Jewish music to Jewish humor. So Jewish music, we said at the onset, is is written in a minor key. But there is the phenomenon of the last 25 years where people who identify themselves as Jewish musicians are singing, my wife and kid calls it the Las Vegas style music. And so it's (laughs) it's written in a major key. And a lot of the stuff that's coming out, wedding music and uh, the upbeat music, it's all it's all major key at this point. So yeah. is, would you say the same thing is happening in Jewish humor, that the minor key, that somberness, that that uh, melancholy, which is the, the, the undertone of Jewish humor, at some time in the future is just going to fall out and we're just going to have this like new Jewish humor? Um. To some extent, maybe. One of the things that I think remains true about humor, though, is that humorists almost all position themselves at the edge, whatever whatever that humorists think the edge is, the edge of social acceptability, the edge of how far you can push satire and critique. Um, and so since comedians... And when we're and and I'm mostly thinking about like um, stand-ups and that not not necessarily people who are writing for sitcoms because that the sitcoms are going into a major key. I can definitely agree with you on that. Sitcom writing has dropped the minor key um, and has gone all happy, upbeat. The good place is brilliant, but it is not in a minor key. Um, but like stand-ups, I think that because there's always going to be that place for comedians who see themselves as that prophetic voice in the wilderness that is trying to shine a light on everything that's wrong with society. Um, I think that there is always going to be a place in humor that holds on to the minor key. Very interesting. Fascinating. So um, just an example, my, and maybe you want to comment on it. My, I have a daughter who's, um, who, who really wants to be, recognized as a stand-up comedian she's got a day job but she's actually out she's on the west coast and she does gigs and she puts together shows and whatnot i i saw her once and her opening joke was hi my name is gaula which happens to be her name and my <laughs> sisters my my siblings are named Sivya, bracha hinda adel shira and then there's my brother alex okay and that's the joke she says how come the guy gets like the normal name so that's that's sort of like yeah that's that's the way she she opens up her her act so she's she's uh she's like borderline cusp millennial z or so so talk talk about that type of a thing then please yeah that's um that's always i think been one of the registers of 
Jewish humor is this space that kind of moves between is it self-deprecating or is it cultural deprecating? So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of self-deprecating in a sense, um, but it's maybe more deprecating of you, her parents, the people who chose her name and, and the culture from which her name and her sister's names come. Um, and, and that I think has been very, um, has been very common in Jewish humor. And is one of the things that I actually say that, Gen Z is doing more millennials to some extent. And then Gen Z even more is moving into away from the self deprecating and into the culture deprecating, um, which is not something that silent generation and um, baby boom comedians were super comfortable with having just like lived through the experience of the Holocaust. um, They were not super comfortable with humor that like seemed to be, finding flaw in Jewish collective identity um, that understandably they were nervous about that. Um, but the, the further we've gotten from the Holocaust, the more distance we've gotten from the Holocaust um, millennial and Gen Z comedians seem much more comfortable making fun of Jewish stuff um, for like existing. Uh, so, you know, I think that's a sort of humor where it's like, it's a joke about myself um, or herself in this case, but it's, also not really something that's my fault. So it's more a joke about other people um, that I think that that's a really common move in, in Jewish humor is that that kind of gray line between it's self-deprecating humor, but it's actually more externally deprecating. Interesting. Fascinating. My, it just occurred to me, my mother did not think that my mother thought that Woody Allen was not funny. She would, she just, she would cringe at his jokes. It's, it's so Hence the idea, she being a, 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 from the great generation, he being a baby boomer. He's yeah. being the self-deprecating, she called it Jew-hating humor, actually. And uh, Yep, I mean, he got that a lot. Philip Roth got that a lot. Yeah, indeed. This is fascinating. We could go on, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Our guest, again, has been Professor Jennifer Kaplan, University of Cincinnati. One thing that always amazes me is how is it that somebody who is a professor at the University of Cincinnati, which there is something called University of Cincinnati Press, their book is published by Wayne State University Press, and the professor yes. at University of, of Wayne State University, they had to go, they had to go to Columbia Press to get their book published. So I don't understand. That's for a different topic, but it's Wayne State University. Yeah, we can Press. have that conversation in another show. It's. I would think that University of Cincinnati would want to publish your things, but. Okay, we're not going to go there. Um, uh, the book is, again, Funny You Don't Look Jewish, Judaism and Humor from Silent Generation to Millennials. It's not a guffaw book. We're not laughing at it, but this is a real good analysis of why things are funny or how things are funny. And uh, are you, we planning, I always ask this every guest who's ever written a book, are you planning a book number two, Jenny? I am. I'm actually on leave all of next year to write book number two, uh, which is currently titled Ask Jewish Identity and Comic Books. Oh, cool. That's yep. awesome. And uh, I'm waiting for my autographed copy. Thank you so much. We're just going <laughs> to wrap it up. Uh, we wish you continued success and only good things, Jennifer Kaplan. Thank you, Rabbi Finlan. Okay, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. We all know there's an opiate epidemic. But Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. 
patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813, it's 800-603-1813, or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Herschel from here, you're listening to the Jewish Hour. This this next upcoming song kind of fits that whole thing that we've been talking about with the mixing of like the somber and the upbeat. This is this is a song. It's called March Lhadodi. Lhadodi is a liturgical poem which is said or sung on Friday nights at the onset of the Shabbos. And it is, we just had Rabbi Shia Katz give a whole explanation for an hour about this poem. And he could have really talked for another hour, maybe even another hour after he got that done after that. And uh, so this poem, this, the, this tune was composed by Yankee Talmud in 1953. So I'm assuming that he was uh, either an immigrant himself or I don't know any, really anything about him, or he was from the great generation and publishing this in 1953. So you can hear the upright strains, but there's that, that undertone underneath it. And I think it's a wonderful piece.
And that was a March Lachadudi by Yankee Tower, and the group was the Freilich Choir. I forgot to mention them before. Up next, this is Yankee Hill, who we've played him before. I don't think he's done any of his own stuff. He's done cover stuff for other people, and here he's doing a cover. This is a Hanan Ben Ari medley. I think he's got a really great voice. Let's listen. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? 
At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. This week, we'll be reading in the synagogue the portion of Tzav, which is a continuing description of how sacrifices were brought in the Temple Times. It is for sure overshadowed by the holiday of Passover. It's Passover's next week. It starts April the 5th, uh, the first Seder, and the second Seder is April the 6th and continues until April the 13th, the 18th, 8th day of Passover, and Passover being one of the major holidays. So Sav usually gets, in this time of year, gets kind of like shuffled under the carpet. But we're going to talk a little bit about it, but we're going to do it in the, in the vein of, pace, of, of Passover. The word sav means to command. Rashi, the classic biblical commentator who explains the very simple interpretation of the words, says that the word sav means to be, to have alacrity, to have diligence, and to do it for all generations. That's the way he defines this word. So whenever it says this word command in in this imperative tense in the Bible, so it means you got to do it right now. You have to be really thorough about it, and you got to keep doing it. What else can we say about Passover except that? I mean, Passover is such an interesting phenomena as... We're not allowed to eat any bread or pasta or cereal products for eight days. 51 weeks a year, no prop. One week of the year, we're told you have to be meticulous. I, I have to remind people that dust is not hummets. You know, people, what they do to their houses, they basically sterilize them, which is probably a good thing. My mother, of blessed memory, used to say that at least for Pesach, people's houses get cleaned once a year. So that was that was her line because, and again, her <laughs> coming from the <laughs> in lines of Jennifer Kaplan, coming from the Great Depression. So, but there is this because it says. That, this is an interesting thing, Jews seem to inherently know it, but not many Jews know this, that. It says people who are careful with the mashuhu chametz, with the slightest, littlest crumb, not to have a crumb of any type of this, this grain products in their house, 
God says, you know what? You're so careful and meticulous about a crumb. I'm not going to be so careful about I'll overlook some of your things too. I'm not going to be so meticulous about you. It's kind of like a reward, a quid pro quo, fitting under the guise of you take care of God and God will take care of you, which I say all the time. So there is this this uh, attitude towards Pesach. My, my bubby, my grandmother, used to say that on Pesach, everybody's craziness is okay. What people would do, what they wouldn't do. So there was a rabbi in Australia who would not eat avocados on Pesach. Not that avocados have anything to do with grain. There is no grain. As far as I know, avocado is gluten-free, which defines grain. But he would not eat an avocado. Why? Because his grandmother did not eat avocados during Pesach. And when I responded to him, your grandmother didn't know what an avocado was. He just like said, it doesn't matter. Okay, so people have all kinds of stringencies. Um, and, and you could, like my grandmother said, you could really drive yourself nuts with it. It's not. I remember my first Passover that I made for my mother when I became religious. So I was, I had a lot of insistencies. I insist we do this. I insist we do that. We have to have this. We can't have this. We have to this. Da, 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 da. Okay. She she called the local rabbi, who was probably the gentlest soul who ever walked the earth. And he came up to me and he said, there's chametz that you have to get rid of from the house, all the crumbs and everything like that. He said, but what you're doing to your mother also constitutes chametz. So just like take it easy a little bit. Okay, so, um, but you don't have to, if you, want to, if you don't want to take it easy, you don't have to take it easy. You want to take it easy, you can take, you can take it easy. My mother, according to all my family over here, my mother used to say people buy for Passover things that they wouldn't use a whole year because they're afraid they're going to starve because they can't have bread for a week. So I, I, I honestly recommend stay away. If you're in, listening to this and you're thinking about it, stay away for kosher, from kosher la Passover for Passover cereal, breakfast cereal. I have never had kosher for Passover breakfast cereal that was worth having. It's just like, it's no, it's just wrong. When I was a kid, we had farfa, which was basically matzah that had been crumbled up into little tiny pieces, and you poured milk on it, and you put a little sugar on it, and you expected it to taste like matzah with milk and sugar on it, but okay. But when they start doing uh, Cheerios made out of matzah meal, it just doesn't work. And granola, oh my goodness. (laughs) Matzah does not belong in granola. So... Um, that's just my own personal. His taste is subjective, and you know, as my mother used to say, no, my sister used to say, it's got taste in his mouth, so it's in it's my mouth. So anyway, so, but the bottom line with all this is, we're approaching. It's a lesson in approaching the mitzvahs with speed and diligence, alacrity, and a sense of timeliness, and a sense of also. Unlike the humor, which changes from one generation to the next, this is the same. We're getting rid of the same hummus and we're eating the same matzah that my grandmother ate, that her grandmother ate, that her grandmother ate, going all the way back 3,335 years. 
Speaking of 3,335 years, well, the Jewish Hour hasn't been on the air that long. We've been on air now. It's 29 years. Can you believe it? Wow. So anybody that remembers the first shows, um, I don't. I would say that they're they were also good. It's not like I was like my. I remember my first show. My first show was like I was nervous, like oh, get out. And it was uh, my guest told me, yeah, it's just the first show. After that, it's like, and and he was right. So we've been on air twenty nine years, and throughout those th- almost three decades, we have been asking people like yourself to please step up, go to rabbifinman.com, and contribute to the cause, because you've been listening now for 51 minutes and 40 seconds to this podcast, and I hope you found it enjoyable. I really enjoyed interviewing Jennifer Kaplan. Um, professors have a tendency to be a little bit, you know, hopefully a little bit more cerebral, and uh, this is a radio program that's not fluff it's not the stuff that you just hear okay that fills the background and it just saps out your brain waves this is one of the things that we as i conclude i hope we had a chance to educate you a bit so we we're here to provide entertaining educational radio programming for you and we've been successful at doing that for 29 years now it costs and the Jewish Hour needs your support. We are at the end of March. March is almost paid for. A couple of payments will come in this week. March will be paid for. If people step up right before Passover, there's people have a tendency to give. So before Passover, make your pledge, which will not only go towards the upkeep of the Jewish Hour, but all the other programs that we do here at the Jewish fill-in-the-blanks. We have Jewish Ferndale, we have the Eparsha, et cetera. We have the matzah campaigns that we're doing. We have public seders that we're doing. So we're doing a lot really to support the community. So your dollar will help the, Jew- the greater Jewish community at large. So go to rabbifinman.com and click on the donations page and donate. Donate to your heart's content. Whatever you feel, small, big, it's all good. Make it monthly. You could do that because it's all set up that way. Make it one big if you don't want to be bothered. It's all good, whatever you decide to do. And while you're at RabbiFinman.com, after you've done that that donation, you could check out the other things that we do over there. If you want to contact me, it's right on the homepage. There's my biography. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Things in which, ways in which we've conveyed Judaism in an entertaining and educational way in various media. They're all there at rabbifinman.com. You might also want to check out our sister website, jewishfriendale.com, my Facebook, which is rabbi.finman, facebook.com slash rabbi.finman.com. It's all, we're, we're out there and we're accessible and uh, get in touch with me if you need anything. That's why I'm here. Like I tell people, I'm available 24-6. We're running out of time quickly. This story, <clears throat> Auschwitz, 1945. The uh, the bombing is bombing, and this, the train station, which had a name to it, which I did not write down, which is outside Auschwitz, was bombed. It was destroyed. And there was a person by the name of Moshe Goldstein, who was later became a Lubavitcher, who was um, part of a detail to go and 
clean up the wreckage of this train station. And he just looked at it and said it was beyond anything that we could do. <laughs> With our little hammers and picks, there was no way we were moving concrete walls. And he said he he managed to, to break away from the group when he's walking along the trains, and he found a train car filled with grain, bags of grain. And he heard some grumbling or moaning, and he said, and he found, what was it? It was an SS officer. And the guy was saying, please help me, please help me. So uh, <laughs> Moshe Golson, he admits, yeah, I helped him. So I, I wound up taking his boots, and the rest you can fill in the blank yourself. So he said, now, we want, Passover was coming, and we wanted to, to make matzah in Auschwitz. He said, how could he do it? So he's found a pair of pants, maybe from the SS officer, I don't know, and he put them on over his pants, and he tied them at the bottom, and he filled up the pants with grain. So now he's got grain. And he led in two other people, his friend Yaakov Friedman, who became a Lubavitcher, and Yekusil Halberstam, who became, who was, and uh, until 1992, I think, the Klausenberger Rebbe, who was also in Auschwitz, and told them about his plan. He says, now what we need is, we need, we need wood to be, to be able to bake. So he told all the people in this group, when you come back, carry sticks home. So one of the Germans called him over and said, what's with the sticks? He says, what do you care? People want to carry sticks. It's no big deal. So now he had it. So now what did they do? They took a tin and they made like a blech, a flat flat surface, and they built a fire at midnight. And they very quickly, besides the 18 minutes that needs for matzah to be built, to, to be but worried about getting caught, they managed to bake. This is after they managed. They pounded the stuff, the grain, into flour and sifted it so that it was Pesach dick to make matzahs. And that way, the Klausenberger Rebbe had matzah in Auschwitz in 1945. That's going to do it. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope we had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. If you need matzah or anything Passover, drop me a line, rabbifinman.com, and uh, we'll see to take care of your needs. Until next week, take care. <laughs> As I got Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.